0: Welcome to the Knowledge Base Ninjas Podcast, where Ram Ramkumar of Document 360 finds the best SaaS self-service knowledge bases in the world, and then interviews their creators. Let's get started with today's episode.
1: Good day everyone. Our guest today is Tom Johnson, Senior Technical Writer at Amazon. Tom has been writing professionally since 2002 and shares his extensive technical writing knowledge on his blog, IWouldRatherBeWriting.com. So welcome, Tom, to Knowledge Base Ninjas podcast. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm, I'm always uh, you know excited about different conversations and I like podcasts in general, so this should be good.
1: Super. So let's get started now, Tom. And uh, here are the questions we'll move through during the interview. So uh, just to uh, um, understand a little bit more about yourself and get everything into context, uh, please explain a bit more about you. And uh, um, we'll talk a lot about your blog, but uh, just a quick introduction to you, a little bit more than what I introduced, Tom.
0: Sure. Uh, I'm based in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, work at at Amazon in the App Store side of the business, uh, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been in, in tech techcom since 2005. And my blog, I'd rather be writing, is where a lot of people know me. I also have an API documentation course that gets a lot of uh, visits and popularity. Um, I, I present and so forth at different conferences and events, and generally like to engage with the community. Uh, I like. I like learning and reflecting and writing. So that's a little bit about me.
1: Super. So how did it all start at Tom? How did you initially got into documentation?
0: Yeah, so I actually have a humanities background like many people. I majored in English. I got a master's in creative writing. I thought I was going to be like a, a writer for magazines or something. Some kind of uh, person writing essays and so forth for Publications uh, steered into teaching writing. I taught for a couple of years at the American University in Cairo, teaching uh, like Writing 101 to students there. And then when I came back to the US, I started working as a marketing copywriter for like very a very low salary. And eventually I had a reality check moment where the financial realities of life, especially. Having a family with children just started to hit me, and I remember one time I actually had a second job teaching writing at like ITT Tech just to make ends meet. And as I was as I was driving to the second job on a Friday evening after working at my regular job, I sort of uh, just had this moment where I was kicking myself for for not choosing a more lucrative career. Uh, eventually. I steered into technical writing because it's much more financially viable. It's like it pays well. Uh, but, but then I realized, and I had resisted it for so long because I just thought it would be boring. Um, but it turns out that technical writing is is not boring. It's actually quite interesting. And there are many, many facets that people often don't consider everything from the tools side of it to the technology teams and other interactions with these um, scrum groups and so forth at work. Uh, so it's, it's a multidimensional career that, that is pretty exciting. So I wish I had uh, given it a little more attention earlier before coming to that reality check moment where I suddenly had to course correct just to stay afloat.
1: Super, thank you for being so frank. <laughs> so what's the current size of your documentation team?
0: We have just two writers, uh, it's me and my colleague, uh, who are part, who are technical writers, but we're part of a developer relations group that includes some marketers, some other kind of program manager people. And we plug in through business development and, and there are other field engineers and sister groups and so forth. Uh, anyway, uh, th- there are a lot of different teams, uh, different writing teams, at. uh, my company some teams are huge you know like the AWS team is huge but there are other teams that are just like a lone writer part of a engineering team and I kind of like being part of a small group because it's easier to make decisions you can experiment with something on the fly you don't have to get collective buy-in from you know 20 different writers before you make a change uh, it's it's uh, I, I like that flexibility a little more.
1: Super. So what is your documentation process and who do you normally involve in such processes?
0: I like this question because uh, as I've kind of listened to the responses from other podcasts, uh, I haven't seen mm, the answer I'm going to give, emphasize as much. As far as processes go, we generally try to follow an agile process, specifically Scrum, because that's pretty much what the engineers at an organization follow. Uh, scrum is extremely common and it, it tends to work when you're marching in the same rhythm as engineers. In, in a nutshell, that process is basically to divide work up, divide your work up into two-week sprints or so, uh, figure out what you're gonna work on in, in that two-week chunk create tickets for each of the tasks. Um, uh, And when you're done with this two weeks, you kind of share out what you have accomplished. And this last part is actually probably the most uh, impactful uh, when when you send out an email to all stakeholders saying, hey, we updated X, Y, and Z in the docs, or this is new. People really appreciate that. And you become more visible. It's sort of the the sprint demo, but it's it's complicated to try to always a, adopt a Scrum workflow. Um, we have both our own documentation Scrum with just my colleague and and uh, me, but we also try to plug into engineering Scrum's when when we have a larger project. So I'm right now. I'm working on a one large project with a group uh, and i try to plug into their engineering process and they have their own jira space you know their own uh sprint dates and so forth and i'll put all my doc tasks in in their sprint but then i also we also have other stuff outside of that project right so i will group those in a different space and unfortunately there are multiple ticketing systems so this other Space as a homegrown ticketing system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the other, the other hard part is that a lot of times in, uh, technical writers don't get counted the same as engineers on a Scrum. Like uh, the point the, the tasks might not receive points. They might not say, "Okay, you have a max of ten points for this sprint. We're not going to over allocate you." You know, and some people may change what your priorities should be halfway through without really respecting the the sort of plan you had at the beginning of the sprint. So you have to be flexible. But but in part, that flexibility uh, is required because most technical writers are partially allocated resources to teams. You bounce around uh, to multiple teams, and your work is not always needed. Right? You're only needed mm-hmm. when there's something to document, and that might not be until the product has reached reached a certain point. So you have to be flexible in how you uh, integrate into Scrum processes. But in general, we found that that Scrum works well. Now, the other process that we follow, which isn't Scrum related, but is uh, is a review process that I've found to be extremely helpful. Um, We have five stages of review that we've formalized. Once we write docs, we review them within our own team. I really try to test the instructions, make sure I can get them to work and, and I'm comfortable with them. Then I expand the review out to the product team. This is usually all the engineers on the team and the product owner who are responsible for this feature or product. After that, I expand the review out to field engineers and support uh, to get their input. You know, at, at each intera- iteration, I'm actually making changes so the, the content is improving. The fourth stage is to review it with the legal group. They usually don't have a lot of input, but sometimes they do, especially if there are uh, like SDKs being released that need licenses or other kind of Uh, attributions. And then the fifth stage is to review the content with beta partners. Usually before release, you have some people testing it out and they will have input as well. Uh, When when I can push content through these five stages and make changes along the way uh, at each stage, it tends to result in pretty good content by the end. Um, I also really try to champion sample apps as part of this process it just uh helps um people adopt the product as well as helps us test it but that review process is is um one that i really uh champion in part because um like our role even if you don't write content, if you just take content that engineers write and move it through this process, you can have a tremendous impact on the product. And one of our roles as technical writers is to sort of convene these different groups around the review. And uh, anyway, I'm a big believer in that. So anyway, that's mostly our process.
1: Fantastic. That's, um, yes, you said um, i don't remember hearing these two uh, techniques very often for this question yeah uh, please share your understanding of the as code school of thought
0: thanks i'm glad that we can dive into this because this is definitely something that's a prominent theme i've seen uh, doxes code refers to treating documentation like software developers treat code in in a loose kind of way not not exactly the same but Generally, there are five characteristics that define a DOCSIS code workflow. The format tends to be a lightweight markup format, such as markdown. The content management method method is usually Git or some other version control. The way you deploy is usually a CI slash CD or continuous integration, continuous deployment method, where you push content to uh, the server, usually through Git and the build kicks off on the server. You usually have a text editor such as Atom or Visual Studio Code and you usually compile or build your content through a static site generator. Uh, now, there are varying degrees to which people adopt the, this these characteristics. Some check all the boxes, some check a few. But that sort of characterizes the DOCSIS code approach. I did a recent developer survey trying to gauge you know, what tools, what processes people followed. Mm-hmm. And about 22% of people are using static site generators. And by people, I mean 22% of people who are writing for developer audiences. That's the limit, the, the segmentation limit of this survey. of people uh, used wikis, 11% used internally built tools, and 11% used XML editing tools. The most common source format was Markdown, 37% of people using Markdown. 56% of people follow Docs as code, and 67% of people manage their content in Git. So, um, among the community that writes Docs for developers, this is a Pretty common method and approach that people take. Um, well, one thing I found surprising is that when you ask people what tool they use for their docs, mm-hmm. it's not a straightforward answer anymore. Uh, you know, people people use a variety of tools in this workflow. There's a a concept called or a, a term called Jamstack that refers to this. JavaScript API markdown sort of concatenation of tools to achieve a result. I found that a lot of people they treat markdown almost like a standard. Maybe you you generate Markdown, uh, or sorry, you generate your docs from Markdown using a script. You write you work in a certain editor, you build it using custom internal tools, it goes through other workflows. There's no like single tool that handles authoring, review, publishing all-in-one package is sort of fragmented um, across a lot of different tools for different needs. And I find that interesting. Uh, I've used a lot of different tools in the past. I've used help authoring tools, wikis, XML authoring tools, web-based content management systems. And I do like the Code approach because it is so flexible, uh, but it does have kind of pros and cons about it.
1: All right. Great. So what are the advantages or disadvantages of dogs as code approach?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is, this is where I wanted to dive into the pros and cons. Uh, The cons, I've sort of talked a little bit about the pros, but I'll get into that more. Um, The cons are that you can spend a lot of time configuring and developing the tools. You kind of need a UX skill set if you're going to build your, your, doc site uh, from scratch. You can use some existing themes, but you'll want to modify them and tweak them. A lot of times these tools are missing search. It's almost the default that search isn't included. And that's really where the expense is. Because even if you adopt an open source static site generator, when you want to integrate search, you're looking at an extra six to 10k a year, depending upon how much content you have. Uh, and that's an and additional integration as well. Um, this this internal development time shouldn't be discounted. I mean, if you're spending a quarter of your time just figuring out your tool set, that's a huge loss of bandwidth that, that you often don't get credit for. People assume that, I don't know, the doc tools just come completely configured out of the box and they don't realize uh, all the time it takes. And finally, these static site generators are often geared towards general web publishing, so they don't really consider tech com scenarios very well. Um, a few common scenarios that go, get overlooked. Content reuse, especially with variables, isn't always straightforward. Localization, uh, the workflows are just not there for most of the tools. Uh, PDF generation, you really have to implement you a know, different Approaches I use Prince XML to do it. You know, we get around this like we localize, we reuse content, we generate PDF, but we've had to be creative in the way we figure it out. And then finally, these tools really lend themselves to a lot of custom scripting. You can use that they have different scripting languages. Jekyll allows you to use Liquid markup and so forth, which is a it's kind of like JavaScript made easy. But as soon as you start doing a lot of custom scripting, you get locked into that tool. It becomes very difficult to uh, migrate because now you have to figure out how you're going to write those same scripts in the other tools, scripting language, and so forth. Anyway, the pros, uh, the, the good parts, the advantages, are that they're open source, so they're free and easy to sort of get started. They can scale up because nobody needs proprietary licenses. You can just have engineers clone the project, open up their favorite text editor, and make pull requests. Uh, You have complete flexibility and freedom to do what you want. You can implement different frameworks. We use Bootstrap, and I like to implement navigation tabs to kind of uh, show and hide different content. And the output is usually a modern-looking website. If you've uh, put the right UX in there, it can look like it belongs on the web rather than kind of an outdated try help.
1: That's great. Thank you. So uh, I know you have written extensively on the topic of the value of technical writers and documentation. So why do you, why do metrics often fall short here?
0: This, I'm, I'm glad that we're diving into the metrics because this is, this is a, a part of my blog. I did ex- I did explore this topic quite a mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. at one point, and I haven't talked about it for a while. But there are usually uh, usually people want metrics for a couple of different reasons. One, maybe you need justification for hiring. If your team is always low on bandwidth, you need to make the case that you your team should expand, and you need metrics to justify that. Or another another scenario is that managers. They just want to understand your work, your productivity, and they can't do that without having some kind of quantifiable form of metrics. Problem is metrics usually fall apart. The research in this, in this area has generally concluded that metrics are not uh, uniform across the industry. They're not widely used, or if they are used, they're not like... Uh, There's not an overwhelming pattern. Uh, Saul Carliner has some great research on this where he's one of the academic uh, and industry um, sort of rock stars and he has some great content on this. But uh, let's look at a classic example. Okay, so just really kind of make this case that metrics are problematic. Mm -hmm. Most common example around metrics is to say that, that tech docs can deflect support costs and therefore you can measure the sort of value of tech talks around the, the amount that has been saved from support costs. So problem number one, uh, Jeannie Reddish explains that a lot of times support and tech docs are in totally different groups with different budgets that don't overlap and often don't even communicate. So uh, right off the bat, it's hard to, you know, have one group be excited about reducing the support costs when costs are coming from different buckets and different parts of the org. But then the other problem is around data collection. Um, how how do you know if you know a support agent used docs to solve a ticket? So maybe the support agent read the docs a long time ago, ramped up, gained knowledge. Now they don't. They don't uh, know, or even realize that they're using docs to the, the, the knowledge they learned from docs to solve tickets or, or, or it's just, maybe they are using it. They're not even noting it. Uh, maybe they're pointing customers to docs, but you have, you have to somehow, uh, note that in the ticket and then quantify that. Another problem, another problem is that how do you know if the ticket was never even created, the support ticket was never created because a customer already found the answer before contacting contacting support. Maybe they searched, maybe they searched on Google, and found your site, found the answer, never called support. Uh, how do you measure the customers who maybe turned down your project because uh, because, of, because of the documentation? You know, this is a huge cost, and this might be more applicable in... DevRel scenarios where you're onboarding partners. Uh, maybe they interacted with the docs, formed the conclusion that integration was too cumbersome, and then decided to go a different route, You know, costing the company, I don't know, whatever the impact of that potential integration would have been. And then there's the reverse. What if the, co- what if the partner is hesitant to sign a contract, looks at the docs, agrees that the integration is going to be fairly simple signs a contract and it brings your company millions like how do you how do you quantify that um, you know there are a lot of different ways uh, how about the scenario where you have internal engineers who are onboarding onto the team the project they go through all the docs and they ramp up like that's a huge amount of time that you saved. Uh, the company by not requiring other engineers to handle them through the product. You know, how does that get quantified? Or um, I don't know, there's a lot of different dimensions. And and when people kind of do math, I don't find it very persuasive. You know, even if you do quantify something and you say, you say, okay, Doc's reduced hundred support tickets a month and each support ticket costs the org hundred dollars. And so we save the company $10,000 a month. I just don't think that a lot of people find math all that persuasive because there's so many different potential uh, cause and effect discrepancies and other factors. What, what Saul Carliner concluded from looking at metrics was that word of mouth tends to be most persuasive, and I definitely find that the case uh, as well. If somebody hears from a couple of different customers that, Hey, the docs suck. And, Oh, we want them to look more like this other companies. It's very easy for people to arrive and generalize at a larger conclusion that, Hey, our docs are poor or the, the reverse. Um, another person who's written a lot about measurement is Bob Watson. And he, he has pointed out that, uh, you really can only measure the impact of docs if you have a before and after scenario with and without docs. For example, you launch a product and you don't have any documentation for it. You can you can probably gauge the impact um, as soon as you add docs at a later point. Granted, you know usually upon release that's when you get the most customer queries. So you, it's not night and day, but. Generally, when you remove docs, you see the real impact. Uh, every once in a while, uh, tech doc sites go down and people freak out. Um, I, I kind of actually like it when this happens. Our doc site doesn't go down much, but uh, when docs are not available for a product due to some technical glitch, you can really see that like people stress out and and suddenly the impact is very apparent. So anyway, in a nutshell, Measurement, I definitely support it. I don't mean to detract from the effort, but it's very difficult, and word of mouth tends to be what people rely on.
1: Wow, that, that's <laughs> that's great. So, uh, so what is the best way to measure usage of documentation, Tom?
0: Yeah. Usage now follows in with metrics in a in a good way. Um, a lot of people use analytics like Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics packages to measure documentation. But here again, it gets tricky because um, for, for a number of different reasons. One is that not all sort of users have the same impact on the business. And this is probably more true in a DevRel situation. But imagine if you have um, let's say you're onboarding different partners. Let's say you are, you're, Roku or something and you have a hundred people who have cat video apps, right. And you're trying to onboard them, but you have one person who's like a Netflix or a very popular video streaming service, you know, in those scenarios, which metrics in terms of like traffic to the docs mean more, right. I think, I think you'd rather have that one popular video streaming service Rather than a hundred cat video apps and that's the case with or that's the problem with traffic if you have a hundred hits on a topic, but those hundred hits are from very important partners that are adding a lot of value to your business it might be more valuable than ten thousand hits from random people who don't impact your business um, so that's part of the problem it's also very difficult to just Sort of draw conclusions that are meaningful from metrics, for example, time on page. If you have one minute on the page versus five minutes, what kind of conclusion can you draw from that? You know maybe it takes five minutes to read it from end to end, but it would only take thirty seconds to scan down to a certain paragraph that might have the answer. Um, bounce rate is also problematic problematic, right? If somebody jumps onto one page, and then leaves your site. That's usually how you define a bounce rate. Uh, Did they find the answer? Did they not find the answer? Um, It's difficult to tell. Uh, Another confusing sort of metric is, is measuring how many pages a person visited while on your site. If somebody visits three to four pages, is that better than somebody who visits two pages? Um, maybe you have shorter topics that require people to click around more, or maybe you have processes broken out across a lot of different steps, or maybe, maybe the material is just confusing and people have to revisit it a lot and click to different areas to fully understand it. You know, it's like, it's very difficult to to draw any kind of conclusions from metrics around usage. Um, what I do pay attention to, however, Mm -hmm. uh, is, is trending pages. Um, okay. I know in, in my docs that uh, some pages are trending consistently. Uh, we have a specifications page that I found is always at the top of the list in hits. So I do focus a lot more attention on that because I just uh, get the sense that it's important to a lot of different people. And I found that these, these specification pages were actually the source of truth for both internal stakeholders as well as external stakeholders. And so um, I put a little more attention on that. But again, you know, it's it's really hard to divide your time based on metrics.
1: True. Great. So do you think, uh, can technical writers create value for um, internal groups within an organization? Uh, if yes, then how how is it uh, um, possible, you think?
0: One of the, one of the, Great articles I've read on this is from somebody named Michael Hughes, who has since retired, but he argued that tech comm's biggest benefit is really around knowledge creation. And knowledge is the lifeblood of a lot of these IT organizations. Uh, He says that technical communicators, um, they're articulating what experts can't really articulate and and which others might not even know to ask. You're, you're creating information that other people are using. The information didn't necessarily exist before. You know, maybe it's trapped inside of an expert's head, they can't communicate it. Or maybe you're synthesizing things and you're making creating new forms of knowledge that make it possible for so many different other parts of the organization to operate. Everybody from different engineering teams who need to. To consume the knowledge to business development people who need to uh, onboard prospective engineers, uh, to just you know internal support agents who need training, to um, you know PMs who want to understand things better. So definitely, this this knowledge creation is a huge sort of uh, value that we add when we're developing information. Um, and this is, again, hard to quantify, hard to really, um, hard to measure. Uh, and um, a lot of people don't, don't really uh, acknowledge the, the impact that we have, that technical writers have with knowledge creation.
1: Mm-hmm. So how involved uh, should, uh, do you think a technical writer uh, be in the customer experience?
0: This is another great question. Um, most people do believe that that technical writers should be user champions, that this is a role we should play, that we should be the voice of the customer, bringing back insights to engineering teams, helping shape and design the product. And definitely the more customer insights you have, the more value, valuable you become to so many different parts of the organization. The problem is it's very uh, hard to have that that constant interaction with customers if you're not interacting and interfacing with customers. Traditionally, the support groups and the field engineers interface most with customers. So you have to go out of your way as a technical writer to mine information from these groups. Uh, Surprisingly, a lot of times support teams won't won't even tell you what trending issues uh, they're experiencing or what, what the customer's point of view is unless there's like an overwhelming gap that they're pointing out. And field engineers are the same they don't just they don 't just arrive at your door saying, "Oh, hey, customers said X, y, and z." maybe they 'll communicate that to a pm when there 's a big gap in the feature set. but in general, you have to mine support logs. you have to go out of your way to, to pull information from field engineers' heads. Um, And so it becomes an extra step that that a lot of times technical writers just don't have the bandwidth for. Uh, But but the the down or the impact is that if you don't have these insights and this customer information, writing tech docs is more challenging because you don't have uh, strong knowledge about your audience, right? If you don't know who your audience is, how do you know how to shape the material? So anyway, yes, a technical writer should be very closely attuned to the customer experience, but uh, we're not always positioned in a way that there's a natural flow from the customer experience to techcom.
1: So, uh, do you think they should be involved in high-level strategy, strategy or just be responsible for writing clear documentation?
0: Well, a lot of people uh, definitely do want to be involved in high-level strategy. Technical writers want a seat at the design table. They want to be more influencers in in how products are formed before they're already cemented. But like I said, in order to get that seat at the design table, you have to sort of saturate your, your knowledge, or you have to, you have to uh, gather a lot of customer insights. So if you want to take that route and you want to be a a design influencer, there's definitely an opportunity, uh, but you might have to, You might have to go. You might have to do it yourself. Like you might have to go out of your way, doing an extra job to gather all this information. You could spend hours, for example, looking through support logs on your own, right? Um, So yeah, some people don't really care about that. Like sitting at the design table, they could care less. They're like, give me the, give me the product one month before release when it's gone through all of its iterations and it's settled down, and I'll document it and move on. So there's different different interests and different opportunities to specialize in different areas in tech comm, And some people are really into design and usability and there's definitely a space for that.
1: That's really great, Tom. So you explained everything quite detailed and uh, now it's time for our rapid fire round. Uh, who have you learned the most about documentation from in your career?
0: One of my favorite people in tech comm is has to be mark baker he had a blog called every page is page one and uh he's since retired but i i really enjoyed it when he was in his active blogging days he really brought a lot of like deep insights and i loved reading his just the way he wrote and just his ability to think deeply on topics he he really um consolidated some great advice into this mantra of every page is page one that had a, had a huge impact on the community. I mean, a lot of people really started to think more deeply about how to write for the web, about the dynamics of the web and how people, uh, how people read and consume information on the web. So I definitely liked Mark Baker and and it's, it's always sad when somebody uh, moves in another direction when they, when they retire, but he definitely had a huge impact on me.
1: Super. So I'm, I'm 100% sure you read and write a lot, but can you share a documentation related to those you have re- consumed recently?
0: Sure. I was recently experimenting with a new podcast editor called Descript, D-E-S-C-R-I-P-T, which is a really interesting sort of thing because it it links your audio file with a transcript, and if you start editing the transcript, it in turn edits the audio, which is really kind of cool. Um, and I started—I had questions while using this, so I sort of dove into their help and realized that it was like a different style. They sort of chunked everything up into bite-sized questions, and and it was a knowledge-based sort of delivery where you just have hundreds of topics that are each like uh, half a page long with maybe a screenshot and just answers a specific question made me realize that, that the docs I write tend to have more user flows that are sort of beginning to end experiences. Um, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that tech writers write are more like uh, thorough. They're more, just descriptive of a, a larger process um another tutorial i have to say my favorite tutorials a different product it's probably this this guy who's got a site called cave of programming uh, where he's teaching programming i loved this guy's tutorials because what it, when he would teach a principal he would open up like a, an ide and sort of dynamically go through an example of that with some small snippet of code and run it to show it. And uh, it was super instructive. I, I think I was learning Java or something uh, through this this tutorial site. So th- there are a lot of different methods, like not all products have the same method for delivering information. You know, if, if Descript used that same principle of showing little samples and the output, uh, it might not might not fit sort of the the information needs of that product. So um, those are just a couple of examples.
1: Okay, so I'm very excited to hear what you have for this question. What is the one piece of documentation related advice you would give to your 20 year old self?
0: I think I would flip this question around and try to ask what is the one piece of advice that my 20 year old self Would give to me right now um, because I'm 44. Uh, So, why would I flip this around? Well, I kind of feel like as I get older, I'm a little more cautious and hesitant to take risks and embrace different changes, you know, like switching jobs to some new role or even moving apartments. You know, it's like I sort of feel like I. I'm, I'm just more cautious about everything. Um, I'm not really sure why. I think when I was younger, I was a little more reckless, a little more open to different directions, you know, more open to just moving forward down some path without understanding where it's going. And I think definitely uh, having more of a mentality of risk taking and uh, opening yourself up to complete. Uh, failures if, if it's a bad decision or something um, is a good mindset and it's hard to keep that as you get older because I think people realize the impact of a bad decision and so it's it's harder to make decisions that don't have known ends but that that's the advice I'd give is to kind of open open myself up to uh, more risk
1: Okay, that that's fair enough. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, before we finish this uh, podcast uh, uh, recording, do you have anything more to add to our audience?
0: Not really. I think that the podcasts you're you're creating are great. I mean, one of the things I I do like about about your approach and the product is this effort to merge the gap between. Uh, knowledge bases and documentation because this is this has really been an ongoing gap in the industry for too long but the fact that we have separate bodies of information separate sort of roles that are writing one writing knowledge bases knowledge base articles one writing documentation and really um, bringing those two together is is a good thing uh, for organizations so I like this focus and I like, uh, a lot of the other podcasts and the trend you're going, you're, the trend you're moving in.
1: Thank you, Tom. I think all the credit should go to our uh, guests as well, because they are willing to join this podcast series and share their experience uh, and help uh, anyone who wants to take this uh, as a serious career. So, yeah, all we are doing is just organizing it, but everything else should go to guests like yourself. Thank you so much for that.
0: (laughs) Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Once again, appreciate your time spent with us today and uh, have a good day.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Knowledge Based Ninjas podcast. Please head to iTunes, rate and provide honest feedback on the podcast. See you next week.